Father, we come before you to hear your voice. We trust that your word speaks to us. Help us to see that clearly today. We want to hear your voice, not my voice. We want to have a hunger and thirst for your word that would convict us if we haven't been seeking your word, that would change us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the word that became flesh. Thank you that you have died for our sins. Thank you that you have left us your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is about, oh, hey, look at that. Some of you listen to me every now and then. No. You've been coming to this church for a while. You've probably heard me say that. In fact, some time ago, we did a sermon series on the Word of God. And when this topic shows up as we study books of the Bible, I, I usually never hesitate to hammer that the Bible is about Jesus. So you can imagine my temptation then. <laughs> Uh, to kind of switch gears in the way I've been presenting these messages as we walk through the doctrine laid out, our, laid out in our faith and practice. However, since I have preached on this topic so many times, <laughs> instead of trying to preach a repeat to you, the uh, doctrinal statement in our faith and practice has compelled me to preach it on perhaps from a different angle. And as a preface, I try to give every Sunday before our time together by our examining in our faith and practice of our denomination, my hope is, ground, is grounding us in the eternal Christian truth that it presents. We're not patting ourselves on the back, nor are we saying that evangelical friends have the best expressions of truth in the Scriptures in the world. Rather, we are revisiting what we already know and thinking through doctrines that sometimes we take for granted and we just say, oh yeah, I b- believe it, and we never examine it. Our doctrine today is God's revelation in the Scriptures, and it's stated this way. It says, we believe the Holy Spirit, excuse me, we believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God. They are divinely, they are the divinely authorized record of the doctrines that we as Christians are bound to accept, and of the moral principles that are to regulate our lives and actions. By their own declaration the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus second timothy 3:15 interpreted by the holy spirit they are an unfailing source of truth we believe the spirit will not lead persons or groups contrary to the teachings of the scriptures in this statement of this doctrine We find that the scriptures are written by God. They give wisdom for salvation. And they come with the Spirit's power. They are written by God, bring wisdom for salvation, and they're with the Spirit's power. First, the scriptures are written by God. The first sentence in this statement says, We believe... The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God. The Bible 
consistently claims it is the very Word of God. The human authors, inspired by God, inform their readers at times that the, Bi- that the Bible, in the Bible I should say, God has instructed them to write these things down. We first read about this in Exodus 17. There we hear that God tells Moses to write down about a war between the Israelites and the uh, <clears throat> Amalekites. Exodus 17:14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. There's something very uplifting for you. You can read that tonight before you go to bed. Moses <laughs> continues throughout the books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, to state that it was God who told him to write these things. In Exodus 34.1, we read God told Moses to write these things. And in Exodus 34.27 and 28, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Well, I mentioned a lot of other verses, and they're on your outlines if you want to look them up later. But other places where Moses states he's writing these things commanded by God are Numbers 33.2 or Deuteronomy 31.24. We see Joshua is told to write in Joshua 24.26. Isaiah is told to write. Isaiah 30 verse 8. Jeremiah is told to write. Jeremiah 32 and 36.2 and verse 28. Um, Habakkuk is told to write, Habakkuk 2.2. If you ever read Revelation over and over and over, John is told to write, write these words down because they are faithful and true. There are other passages that God instructs people to write. Other times we're not told that God specifically told people to write it down as words from the Lord. You open up the book of Nehemiah and you feel like you're reading uh, a journal. We know that the Psalms were, were songs written for communal worship. We know that the evangelists writing the gospel accounts are so that people might believe. Luke is doing it as a research project funded by a wealthy person. The epistles of the New Testament are written as instructions from one pastor to churches. And these are all writings for different reasons, none of which claim to be moved upon to write such words because 100% God you know, pushed them over and told them to write a book. Nevertheless, we know that they are inspired and true in the very Word of God. And one of the epistles is written by Peter, and there he states, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Because God told all these people to write, what you have in front of you, and I said this a few weeks ago, is a library. It's a library of 66 books by over 40 authors. Now, think about these numbers. (laughs) Over 40 authors... Written over 1,500 years from multiple continents and in three languages. All put together one way or another in front of you on any given day, all in one book and in one language. 
Just those numbers alone tells me that God had to write the book. (laughs) Most doctrine statements talking about the inspiration of God when it comes to scriptures comes from 2 Timothy 3.16, the King James saying, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, I was born in 1989. That shows you how young I am. And the word inspiration growing up for me was more like uh, a genre of books or movies. <laughs> the inspirational section. And I don't know, these are just things that make you cry or you're supposed to react emotionally. Inspirational. The word itself, inspire, comes from a Latin root word that means to breathe into. Inspire, we think of expire, inspire. And that's why the ESV would say in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now that to me says something a bit more differently, simply because I didn't know the etymology of the word inspire before, but its usage inspired just hits me as something less than what it means in the passage for me. See, these are the very words of God. He breathed them out. In His providence, God has moved upon the authors of the Bible to bring us this miraculous library that all fits together. Now, some of you, my sermons are, you know, hard enough trying to understand my brain, but now I get to take you a little bit deeper. Sorry. Um, so, um, now you're going to exercise grace and patience, so you can thank me later. As I've mentioned from time to time, I'm going through Jeremiah in my own personal study, and here's a picture of Jeremiah 30 out of my Bible. Um, it's my HCSB journaling Bible. I think verses 8 through 10 will give us enough material to demonstrate how God wrote this Bible and how it's all connected. See, God through Jeremiah is promising restoration for his people. His people are being taken away into captivity into Babylon. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Again, I'm using the HCSB here. It says, On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, the HCSB takes a weird, instead of saying the Lord says, or thus says the Lord, they say it, This is the declaration of the Lord. I will break his yoke, that is Babylon's yoke, from your being God's people, from your neck, and tear off your chains so that strangers will never again enslave him. Now the word him is a pronoun with the antecedent in verse 7. The him there is Jacob, a singular reference to God's people. Verse 9 They will serve the Lord their God, and I will raise up David their king for them. few things here. First of all, the Bible is about Jesus. And sure enough, here's Jesus, King David, David their king for them, being raised up. But whenever I saw Jesus in this passage, coupled with the word yoke, in verse 8, my mind went to a saying of Jesus. And I wrote it in my journaling Bible. And because I'm weird and a glutton for punishment, I use multiple versions of the Bible while I'm studying. So I wrote down the RSV of Matthew 11:28 through 30, which says, Come to me, all who, are, uh, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So in Jeremiah, we have promises of a release from the yoke of Babylon. When the great King David, King Jesus comes, and he instead invites the people of God to put upon his yoke. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke is for those who labor and are heavy laden. So I connected two books, one from the New Testament, written hundreds of years after from Jeremiah. What else did I see? And you're like, please, no, that's enough, Kevin. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 30 says, As for you, my servant Jacob, do not be afraid. This is the Lord's declaration, and do not be dismayed, Israel. So first of all, Jacob and Israel are covenant names for his people. For without fail, I will save you from far away. Now just right there, something about Jesus came to my mind again. Of course, here is God saying through Jeremiah that God will save his people from Babylon. You know, even though God is commonly thought just to be the God over Israel, God is saying, I'll save you even though you're not in the promised land. But saving them from far away reminds me of Jesus in the New Testament. When the centurion comes and he wants Jesus to heal his servant, Jesus says he'll go with them. But then the centurion tells Jesus, no, you don't even need to come. Just say the word and he's healed. To which Jesus responds, marveling at his faith that a Roman centurion would place that much faith in Jesus when there seems to be no such faith in Israel. Because of that faith, Jesus heals the servant far off. And so just as Israel is healed in Babylon and the Romans and the pagans are healed, a far off people. Verse 10 continues. For without fail, I will save you from far away, your descendants from the land of their captivity. Jacob will return and have calm and quiet with no one to frighten him. There's a verse that a Quaker could love. Now... This is why I like using multiple translations of the Bible because I didn't notice another reference to Jesus directly until I compared this verse in the modern English version which says, Therefore do not fear, O servant, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet and no one shall make him afraid. This word seed jumped out at me in the modern English version. HCSB used descendants. The word seed is a symbol for Jesus. At least it is for me, as early as Genesis 3.15, Jesus is the promised seed who will bruise the head of the serpent. So I thought to myself that here is a messianic foreshadowing that Jesus is the seed who is saved from the world's captivity because he conquers it. Because of the seed's rescue of God's people, Jacob, the people of God, the people of the promise. So Paul tells us in Romans 4, we find rest and quiet. Now I found more, but for the sake of time and for the sake of your headaches, and, and you know some of you are already asleep, you can wake up now. Do you see how God's word connects to itself? Different authors, books and times, but all of it is connected because it's all God's word. If you don't have a Bible with a cross-reference system, 
I would highly encourage you to get one. These are the Bibles that have little letters next to words and phrases that correspond with other references in the Bible. And uh, they show you how the Bible is connected. Sometimes it's two different authors from different continents, thousands of years apart, but they're talking about the same thing. And it's very interesting. It's very faith strengthening that the Bible is written by God. The Bible is also wisdom for salvation. Our statement says this. They are the divinely authorized record of the doctrines that we as Christians are bound to accept and of the moral principles that are to regulate our lives and actions. By their own declaration, the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I was able to split up this second part into two smaller parts. Basically, the Bible's wisdom is, first of all, God's doctrine. And secondly, the Bible is God's direction to himself. Through, though these messages that I'm giving are examinations of doctrinal statements from our faith and practice, it should be evident that they are entirely scripturally based. This is because any and all doctrines are doctrines first and foremost stated in the scriptures. Our case in point, since we're talking about the Bible, the scriptures have within itself assertions about its own authority. Let's start with the scripture that our doctrine brings up right here in 2 Timothy 3. I've already mentioned verse 16, but let's look at verses 15 through 17, where Paul says the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ, excuse me, salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here we see that the, an assertion that the scripture, to use the English word here, found in verse 16, are words breathed out by God. Does the Bible constitute itself as what we have today, namely the 66 books? Does the new, by the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, they had the Septuagint. In other words, they had the Old Testament in the Greek. And Jesus and the apostles quoted often from them. Many times Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, which is a quick way of referring to the Old Testament. Sometimes Jesus would even argue from tenses of words. How about the New Testament? Was Paul so boldly as to directly call his letters to the many churches or individuals like Timothy here, Scripture? As in 2 Timothy 3.17 that says, Oh yes, and by the way, I'm writing to you God's breathed words as well. No, he actually, Paul doesn't say that. <laughs> but an ideological opponent of Paul, formerly a guy named Peter, does call Paul's word Scripture. In 2 Peter 3.16, he states his upset that many are misinterpreting Paul's letters. And Peter says, there are some things in them, that Paul's letters in context, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You hear how Peter qualifies Paul's letters as scriptures there? The other scriptures, referring to the other sacred writings that believers read, but the way he uses that phrase, he's, the other is in comparison to these scriptures that he's talking about, namely Paul's letters. 
Paul's letters are scriptures. Are there passages in the New Testament that let us know that other books in the New Testament are scriptures? Again, there are places in Revelation which always has self-authenticating remarks, like when God says, write these down, these are faithful and true. But I think an important passage for me that authenticates all of the New Testament as divinely inspired and breathed out by God is actually found in Hebrews. Hebrews 1.1, the first part of verse 2 says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. I wonder if you see this reasoning here that first the author states that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's God's word, the divine word, his speaking. How so? By the prophets. That's an even shorter phrase to likely refer to the entire Old Testament. Just like we say, you know, we know where the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We're not just talking about the Bible in general. We actually mean John 3.16, but we called it the Bible because it's a catch-all phrase. I believe that's how the author is using the prophets here, referring to the entire Old Testament. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The immediate context of this passage, the author here is making an assertion that what the word of God was in the Old Testament through the prophets, Jesus is in these last days. It echoes in some sense, John chapter 1, that the Word became flesh. What this means for me, though, and this is my way of thinking, so I cannot 100% give you more scriptures to verify that this is what this means. But I believe that testimony about Jesus, about the God who speaks to us in His Son, as Hebrew says here, in other words, the Gospel accounts, they become divine in that they testify about Jesus. The epistles of John, largely more testimony about Jesus. And the same author who pins the Gospel of John and Revelation, they're all divinely inspired. My point in Hebrews 1.1 is that the testimony about Christ, who speaks for God in these last days, easily can be shown to be divine because they're speaking about Him. Other ways to verify the divinity of the New Testament is also, their consistency with the Old Testament. The point in all this is showing that by the Scripture's own testimony, they assert a doctrine of the Scriptures. We can also derive out of the Scriptures many doctrines. And I wrote all those on your outline. That is the necessity of faith in Christ for salvation, or the divinity of Christ, or the creation of of the world uh, by God or the reality of the Holy Spirit living in believers and so forth. So God's doctrines are evident by the scriptures. It's where we derive all doctrine. Secondly, our statement tells us that found in the scriptures are God's directions to himself. Our statement saying that this divine record speaks of the moral principles that are to regulate our lives and actions By their own declaration, the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I believe our definition of salvation is sometimes too small for Christians. The first thing Christians think of, myself included, many times. 
Oh, salvation, being saved from sins and ending up in heaven. (laughs) That's it. Consider the first time the word salvation shows up in the Scriptures. Once it is mentioned at the end of Genesis, but Moses refers to the Exodus, that is the Israelites, coming out from under Egypt, miraculously spared through the Red Sea as salvation. He says, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And I bring this up to say this. Did the Israelites have any immediate thoughts of being saved from sin? (laughs) Or being saved for heaven? They had all immediate thoughts of, of, um, excuse me, immediate thoughts of watching in present expectation that God would deliver them then and there from a present enemy and see them safely to a better destination. And he did so, as you all know the story. Now the beauty is this, that we are saved from our sins and we are saved for heaven. That's the greatest revelation, perhaps, of the New Testament. The great controversy of Christ was that Israel looked for salvation from their Roman oppressors, but Christ bought a greater salvation, salvation from the spiritual and eternal oppressors of sin and Satan and hell and the wrath of God. However, sin, Satan, and hell and the wrath of God perhaps has two realities These things that have future and eternal ramifications, but they also have present ramifications. When you and I are stuck in vicious cycle sins, sometimes we fool ourselves and call it our personality traits. My personality type is J-E-R-K. I can't help it. (laughs) Bad habits. But the Scripture calls them sins. In Christ, we still find a present salvation. In Christ and the Scriptures, as they continuously convict us to where Paul exhorts us in Romans 6, 12-14, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Did you hear all the present ramifications of that? It seems like Paul is saying, you have a choice to make here and now. You could be sinful or not. (laughs) Is Is it really that present? Paul would say in his letter to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Present ramifications, this salvation. It's supposed to be worked out in fear and trembling, but before we think, wait, I have to work for my salvation, Paul reminds us, no. It is God who works presently, actively in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Because God's salvation is not just a future thing. It's a present thing. It's a deliverance thing. God can deliver us from our current prisons as well as the future one that awaited us apart from Him. And the Scriptures can make us wise in that. The Scriptures can be used by God to convict us in that. But not just the Scriptures alone, but also the Spirit. That's the final part of the statement, that the Scriptures come with the Spirit's power. It says, interpreted 
by the Holy Spirit. They are an unfailing source of truth. We believe the Spirit will not lead persons or groups contrary to the teachings of the Scriptures. Paul, when he writes to Corinthians, states this. Now we, talking of believers here, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that's the Holy Spirit, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, among them being the Scriptures, and we impart this, Paul's talking about the Gospel, the testimony of Christ, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So here is another self-authenticating remark of the Scriptures. (laughs) Paul just said, the words we, that is Paul, the apostles, impart our spiritual truths inspired by the Spirit. But then Paul says, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Say that five times fast. No. To receive the truth from the Holy Spirit about the Scriptures, we must in turn be spiritual. In other words, we need to be open and willing to receive God and receive the Holy Spirit as true. And then Paul would go on to say, In this passage, contrasting from the spiritual person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Apart from the Spirit, apart from faith in Christ, apart from willingness and acceptance, the Word of God never seems to take hold. You know what Jesus says over and over in the Gospel accounts? He who has ears to hear, (laughs) meaning if you're actually willing to give me a listen, not a crossed arm, I'll shut my mouth and you speak while I make a defense type listen, but a genuine, open-hearted, defenses down type listen, ears to hear, where there is the faith of a mustard seed, God's Spirit can speak into that. But it's important we open this book to listen as opposed to teach, like me, or to twist, or to interpret, or to say what we want it to say. Rather, we listen, we hear the Word of God from preaching, yes, and we hear the Spirit-inspired conversations and the like, where the Spirit moves in us, but the Scriptures are God's Word. And when the Spirit who wrote these words can be the Spirit speaking to us, the Holy Spirit never contradicts Himself. Paul gives this grave warning in 2 Corinthians 11. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough, as in you shouldn't be so willing to do that. We should know and trust our Bibles and not let anyone, whether we think them charismatic and spirit-inspired, lead us contrary to the Word of God. Titus 1.2 says God never lies. Hebrews 6.18 takes it farther and says it's impossible for God to lie. Numbers 23.19 says God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The Spirit of God interprets this for you and the Spirit of God will never contradict what he has said. I want to end on an illustration that I used in my Word of God series. In fact, I used a lot of points from that series. But suppose 
the mailman came up to your house tomorrow and your spouse or your family member, whoever goes down and picks up the mail for you and then announces to you what you got. Well, you got a bill, you got a brochure, you got junk mail, you got a a letter from God Almighty of the universe, you got a letter from Cousin Bob. And how many of us are going to nonchalantly say, oh, give me the letter from Bob, put all the other junk on the table. We have a letter from God Almighty of the universe. The Bible was written by God. He gives us wisdom for salvation. He tells us what truth is all about Himself. Contained in these words right here is sufficient. Everything we need to know to survive. You might ask, well, does it answer every single problem? And while it may not have chapter and verse to tell you what to choose, black socks or white socks, it has chapter and verse to tell you about making that decision even. You catch that illustration. It's sufficient. It gives us God's direction to Himself. It has the power of the Holy Spirit who wrote it and tells us of the Holy Spirit who can commune with us to further understand His words and His will. And if you say, but there are Christianese words in there that I don't get. It's not these and those anymore, but Kevin, you use words like justify and propitiate and wrath and sanctify. You have my permission to get a Bible that you understand. (laughs) If you need a step lower from the ESV, get an NIV, get an HCSB, get a New Century Version. That was the first Bible I read and really liked. It's like a third grade reading level. Get a Bible that you can read and read it until you understand it. And then, yeah, sure, get a more literal Bible, but just be in his word. I don't know if you've noticed or caught on, but I have a library of Bibles and study Bibles. And if you're feeling like you're not in the Bible enough, approach me. I have lots of pointers. (laughs) The pastors I appreciate most and the pastors I think who do the best job is if bare minimum you get nothing from me or you wonder what what is that guy saying? Get a Bible and read it. That's, that's fine. <laughs> Let me make it clear. Some of you may not be getting this. If the only time you crack a Bible or hear the Bible or see the Bible is up on this screen on Sunday, I am begging you. <laughs> I can't say it any more louder or clearer. God wrote this book. He wants to talk to you. Sometimes you can't hear Him because A, you're doing all the talking. <laughs> or B, You're making demands on what you want him to talk about. When you just open the Bible and God knows all the things you want to talk about, all the problems you're going through, but you are selfless enough to say, I don't want to talk about me today. (laughs) I want to hear from you about what you want to say, Lord Jesus. He speaks. He speaks. Let's pray. Father, um, many of us don't see it that way. Sometimes I'm not struck by it that I do have a letter from you in the mail, and but I'm more willing to set it aside and watch TV. Set it aside and work on my hobbies, things that I want to do. When all we need to do is look outside and ask the question, who made all this, and then consider, you want to speak to me. You've written to me. Father, would you move us to be enthralled and captivated and wanting to take the heart and meditate and and hear the words you would have for us? Because in the Bible are all the things sufficient that we need to know and to grow. 
And Father, we live in a day and age where your word is so accessible. We know that there are translations out there that aren't perfect, but the fact that we have access to many Bibles that are good. Father, would you help us to not let this season of history pass through our hands without ever taking advantage of it? Rather, would you speak to us continually? Would you move us to be in your word? Father, would we make the habit here and now, if we haven't, to be in your word every single day? To begin our day hearing a word from you and to end our day hearing a word from you. Because quite honestly, it's the best word we'll hear whenever there are a lot of voices vying for our attention. What could be better than the God of the universe speaking to us by his Holy Spirit? Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask that we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers as well. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Father, we also want to make mention of the meal we're about to enjoy downstairs. We pray that you would have blessed the hands that have prepared it, that you would bless our conversation and help us to um, commune with one another and commune with you um, around the table. We love you and we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name.